0: What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host Van Jackson, and today we've got Gabby Magnuson, hi, Kiara Mitchell, hello, Pete McKenzie, hey, yeah, and Jake Dello. Good morning. All right, two quick hits before we get into it. The first is neither of these is like a shout out necessarily, but the first is a new report from the Brookings Institution, and it's called The Rise of the Futurists, The Perils of Predicting with Future Think. Um, I actually know one of the authors, Alex Montgomery. He's a hot shit political scientist who does uh, quant stuff, uh, a lot of like network analysis type stuff. He's very good at what he does. This report is taking issue with basically futures studies as a as a field um, implicitly but what they're arguing is that when people who use scenario analysis and war games and other um, techniques and methods of analysis that is like all part of like the futures studies canon when they make predictions they're doing so erringly or they're taking on risks because they are creating expectations about the future that are not probabilistic but what they call is like Possibilistic, right? You're chasing possibilities or you're presuming that something that's possible will be. And insofar as that's what they're arguing and that's what they're critiquing, that's correct. That's not what you're supposed to do, right? Um, The reason why I'm flagging this is because I teach a course, which uh, Gabby had taken, on (laughs) the analytic tradecraft of strategists, basically. And these various tools are some things that we teach, but you know, the, the canon of future studies, like the core first principles, are that what we do affects the future, the future cannot be predicted, and the future is not predetermined. And everything that you do with these various tools of analysis, it's predicated on those assumptions. So if you're making predictions based on scenarios or based on anything else, you're, you're already wrong. You're already a charlatan. The problem with this, and I'm gonna teach this report in uh, this class in the future, but my concern here is that these authors and what what they're arguing for is basically positivist social science reasoning, thinking probabilistically, which is what we do in the social sciences, right? Especially if we do quantitative shit. And that's fine for producing analysis. That's not fine for deferring policy judgment. Like you don't make decisions solely on the basis of probability because probabilities are reflecting correlations. The causation is something that you infer but almost never can can rarely prove. And so when you've got probabilistic reasoning as part of your analytical toolkit, that's great. But when you decide to outsource your own judgment and your own critical thinking to that or when you conflate probability and prediction, which is precisely what the fucking Nate Silvers of the world do. Like this 538 shit. When you're moneyballing, you are predicting. And you're predicting on the basis of probability. And those probabilities are causally inferential. They're they're correlations. So that's very problematic and very, very, very common. It's like what almost everybody does in the fucking social sciences, and especially the people like the Nate Silvers who monetize this stuff. It's all converting probabilism into prediction that's the real common problem. This report makes it sound like the opposite is true. Like if you're making a prediction based on a scenario, that's the real problem. That's a problem. I agree with that. It's far less common. Um, It's far less common than the norm, you know, but this is good for food for thought. And like, I don't know if this is your bag, then it's worth, it's definitely worth a read.
1: I mean, one of the things I find really interesting about this kind of area, and I mean, I've come across it mostly in the context of, of Nate Silver and 538, yeah. where you are trying to give, um, you are trying to quantify the the knowledge that you've built up, is that it's impossible to mm-hmm. to prove or disprove either way. I, I mean, I wonder how you assess the reliability of these kinds of resources like i know you hate 538 but like how do you assess the value of 538 when you can't prove or disprove whether it was right or wrong because it's a a non-falsifiable prediction yeah i mean you say sorry assessment of probabilities
0: yeah so if you say something has like an 86 percent chance of happening you know hillary clinton has an 86 percent chance of winning the election or something that's called a subjective probability you have and when 538 does their shit They have a basis for generating that number, but having a basis for something doesn't make it correct. It just means here's what our reasoning is. And so there's this famous example of Nate Silver saying that like the odds of 9-11 happening were like 1 in 25,000 or something like that. And that's ridiculous. It's It was, I mean, by definition, it was like a black swan event. But it was this thing that you could not predict. And like most human, like most social behavior, like most international politics, you can't predict it. If we could predict war and peace, our lives, like foreign policy would be so much easier to do. You cannot. So when you put the number on it, 86%, that's the likelihood of it happening. That's false confidence. To me, that's snake oil because people take away, oh, it's more likely to happen than not. But what you, the number is, for all intents and purposes, arbitrary in the sense that it's not objective, in the sense that it is a subjective probability based on your own criteria, not some established criteria that everybody accepts, your own criteria. And then because, you, because it's uh, statistics generally speaking, you can show your homework, although nobody ever reads it, right? And so there are places, there are tabs on 538, the website where you can look at their methodology and scrutinize it and critique little bits of it. And people do, but that misses the point that the whole larger enterprise of subjective probability is creating false confidence about what we would call radical uncertainty. Things that are just inherently unpredictable, but you're doing this little rhetorical magic trick where you say, you're, you're technically not predicting, but you kind of are. And then the worst part of it or the most frustrating part of it is that like, well, Hillary Clinton didn't win. And then he can, Nate Silver can be like, well, I didn't say she would win. I said she had an 86% chance of winning. And so like, it's not guaranteed. It's not a lock. There's a 14% chance she could lose. And so no matter what happens, and this is the non-falsifiable thing, no matter what happens, it's like, well, that doesn't mean I'm wrong. And if she wins, and that's what the probability was, you, you get to claim that you were a genius. So this is a fucking shell game. The every, like, everyone's getting played, and like the, it, it feeds the media because the media loves to say, what what's the number? What are your odds? Like in the, in the nuclear crisis in 2017, I cannot tell you how many times I got asked What are the odds of nuclear war with North Korea? What are the odds we end up in war with North Korea? What kind of fucking question is that? I always gave this convoluted answer that never got quoted, basically, that like we should worry about the risk of nuclear war with North Korea, identify the pathways to those risks, like how it happens, and then reverse engineer it, buy down those risks. That's how we should be thinking about it. Right. We shouldn't be thinking about it as like 40 percent chance. Oh, not worried. 60 percent chance. Oh, now I'm worried. That's all bullshit. That's all made up. And yet most pundits were happy fucking Richard Haas, you know, like all these big name people who would go on like MSNBC or CNN or whatever. They're happy to say, oh, it's a 50 50 chance based on what you fuck. That's the subjective probability. And it's even worse than the Nate Silver shit because there's no analytical basis for it it's literally your fucking finger in the wind so i don't know if that answered your question but subjective probabilities annoy me because like literally anybody can come up with one and it creates false confidence you know second quick hit from the jerusalem post the former israeli space security head haim eshed has (laughs) claimed as if it's just fact right he's he's stating this in a very nonplussed way that there is a quote-unquote galactic federation consisting of the u.s and israel and aliens from another galaxy (laughs) and yes and uh that they can't reveal it yet even though he is because humanity isn't ready to know it he is I feel like he should go to jail for this because he's he's absolutely <laughs> lying, but there's a certain percentage of people who are going to believe it. I want to believe it, but I know he's actually lying his ass off. I 100% know it because there was some small part of me that joined the Air Force back in the day and got into intelligence to find out if there was fucking aliens, and there's not, man. <laughs> <laughs> like, Or at least not that we know of, you know?
1: I was going to say, that's what you would say, yeah Yeah. <laughs> <That's, laughs> I just As, uh, signed up members of the deep state. We're here to propagate all of the lies.
0: This is actually a deep state podcast. I'm here to completely just deconstruct everything and peddle disinformation. Um,
2: I believe it, they exist. They're real. I've seen them myself. I swear. Trust me.
0: I'm trying to make you all critical of capital, so that you're focusing on it and not looking up into the stars. <laughs> Um. So, <laughs> fuck man this is so fucked up it's i want to believe and i hate this guy for flirting with me like this and the the thing that you have to know two things one there's nowhere in the national security even in even super compartmented secret stuff in national security there's nowhere to hide it where it won't leak There was a time when fucking Stuxnet was like the most secret compartmented thing in the world. It took like six months for the whole world to find out about it. The shit leaks. It always fucking leaks. Nothing stays fucking secret, man. It's just how it is. And there's, it's not like you could advertise on USA Jobs or something for like, who's the, the fucking alien analyst? Like, where's that job? If there's bureaucrats working on it, where are they coming from? And are you telling me that like... Politicians would know about this and keep it secret. Are you telling me that Trump would know about this and keep it secret or Jared Kushner? If John Bolton knew about this, do you think he wouldn't be bombing something? There's no way that these people know about fucking aliens when the rest of us don't. There's no way. But also, if you've ever read the three body problem, the the Chinese sci-fi book trilogy, there's a very compelling case that if aliens can come to visit us, they are wildly 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 more technologically advanced than us to the point where they're basically magic they could they can operate in dimensions that we don't even that we can't even process you know if that's the case they could destroy us on site the idea that they would enter into a galactic federation with ants is ridiculous or with mice You know, like that's the equivalent we would be we would be nothing to them in an existential sense if their technology was so advanced that they could come visit us. And frankly, in the three body problem, if they can come visit us, it means they can destroy us and will. So like yeah. <laughs> that's not cool. So I don't know. I mean,
2: to be fair, we're sort of fucked, right? Israel's already our ambassador.
0: Seriously. Like, we're <laughs> we can't even cancel student debt or provide medical care for everybody. Like what the fuck? What's the, what's the point of this place? Yeah, you so I fuck this guy. No.
3: Yeah, just for this article, what was the point of it at all then? Like why did he bother say it? Do you have like a theory in mind
0: or He's either gaslighting to see how much he can get away <laughs> with or he's yeah. actually He's actually lost his mind.
2: Let's do Prediction Market, where we get VAN to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. All right, for Prediction Market this week, we're going to kick off question one following on from our bombshell story on Israel and the Galactic Federation that they um, are the ambassadors for uh, us. The question for this week is. Will any other states make up stories about aliens to obfuscate (laughs) war crimes they're committing before January? This might be my favorite
0: question so far. Definitely my favorite question today. So, yes. I mean, no. No. (laughs) But I do love the... (laughs) (laughs) I do love the theory that he's peddling this as a way of distracting from Israeli fucking war crimes and illegal settlements. That's for sure and assassinations of nuclear scientists and all the rest. Um, well, like have to,
2: they, it would have to be. They put it on the Jerusalem Post.
0: Right? I, just, I mean, yeah, like if you're, this is a very good way of getting attention for no good reason except to pull attention away from other shit that you don't want attention on. This is very much a Trump playbook kind of thing. I'm surprised Trump didn't jump all over this. But yeah, I can't imagine other countries doing this.
2: Okay, for question two, there is a pronunciation that I'm not sure of, listener Comrades. So if I get it wrong, feel free to roast me in the comments. It always happens anyway. Question two Will Pakistan be successful in formalizing the disputed territory of Gilgit-Balistan as its fifth province before March?
0: Yeah, so there's obviously a big, long-standing series of territorial disputes between Pakistan and India. And Pakistan is changing the status quo within its side uh, that it controls, but the control is de facto. It's not formally acknowledged. It's formally disputed. And so on its side of the line of actual control, it's changing the status quo. And this is funny because this is what India did in its dispute with China on its territorial dispute across the Himalayas.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: And so like, this seems to be a thing now, like almost like a fait accompli, where you're sort of sidestepping coercion, but you're shaping circumstances in your favor. Going on the offense is not the right phrase, but it you're taking proactive action. So like, China reacted violently when India was trying to create. Uh, roads for better infrastructure to solidify its military position on its side of the line of actual control. Pakistan is not building a a tower or better infrastructure, as far as I can tell. This is like about holding an election there. But um, this is, again, kind of presenting a fait accompli. And it forces the other side, because this is what fait accompli do, like it forces the other side to decide whether to accept this change to the status quo or to push back T- typically, in like an aggressive kind of way, right? Retaliate. That's of course dangerous because it's Indo-Pakistani rivalry, right? Nuclear states.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Wait. So, what was the question? I forgot the question already.
2: Will Will the fifth province, the fact that they've called it their fifth province, will it be formalized? Isn't? Do you think there'll be any walking back on it? Do you think India will get involved some more than they already are? Oh, about? yeah. Will it be fought over properly.
0: Yeah, I think the answer is yes. I think. In part because I don't see what India can do about this. This is the problem with faits accompli. It circumvents any kind of red line. And unless India is willing to attack Pakistan as retaliation, it's like, what can you fucking do about it? You know, like if Taiwan declared independence formally, China could not physically stop Mm -hmm. it. It could only retaliate. And that's a tough decision. You know, and that's what's happening here. And so Pakistan's already going down this path. It is formalizing. I mean, India is not going to accept this, but Pakistan is simply exercising greater control, formalizing control in a sense of what is disputed territory, Gigalit-Balistan, which again, I don't even know if I'm saying that right.
2: Well, in lieu of me going on forever, we could probably lock in some Pakistan questions, more for production market in the next few weeks. Question three, will Japan join Five Eyes? before april next year and that's the five eyes security partnership
0: yeah so uh, i'm gonna say no or at least not not before april the five eyes is weird because it's very close but bureaucratic information sharing arrangement and so it's at an interstate level it shows like a high degree of trust It just so happens they're all white countries, right? Australia, Canada, New Zealand, uh, U.S. and U.K.
2: (laughs) just so happens.
0: So like Commonwealth plus the revolutionaries. And (laughs) it is technically apolitical, but it's become more political because the Trump administration has actively tried to use it to promote anti-China policies. And so you have the Five Eyes countries making joint statements and this kind of thing. But it's also become political in the New Zealand context. I don't know if it is in the other countries because like, there's a constituency in New Zealand that sees the racial commonality and the fact that it's a national security thing, just that imagery by itself. You don't need to know anything about it. It's like national security plus white people equals bad. And so there's an instinctive, it's not a majority, I don't think, here, but there's an instinctive, like, allergy to Five Eyes. So it is kind of political. I don't know what, like, uh, the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern thinks, but there are, it's not an unalloyed good. Like, Five Eyes is valuable to New Zealand. It's not NATO or something. It's not sacrosanct. Like, there, there are scenarios where New Zealand could, like, pull itself out of it, or where the Four Eyes could cut the U.S. out of it. Right. Uh, Because it's a fucking psychopath country right now. And so like in that context, bringing in Japan, like if if Trump won another term, I could see Japan joining because it would add to the politicization of five eyes in the anti China direction. I think there's a strong case for including Japan at some point or carving out some kind of like quasi like five eyes adjacent status for them. Because Japan is very close with all of these countries, um, especially Australia and the U.S., but it's too it's too political right now. And five, five Eyes is not in the business of expanding. That's not that's not a thing. Like enlarging Five Eyes is not automatically a good thing. So, like, I'm I'm open to the idea. I could see it happening eventually. I don't think there's any hurry for it though.
1: Five Eyes is weird in the New Zealand context because it's become this proxy for how much do you support New Zealand's traditional security partners? And the reason that's become the case is because no one wants to say how much do you support remaining aligned with the white colonial powers? But also New Zealand doesn't have any other strong relationships. We left ANZUS sort of, we try and maintain some sort of strategic distance from all these powers. So Five Eyes has become the only kind of formal institutional connection that we have between them, which I think is different than most other members because you know australia and america have a, a, a strong bilateral relationship the uk and the united states uh, have a similar thing so you don't have to do the same kind of weird wordplay to to hide what it is you're really talking about which is strange and interesting in new zealand at least
0: yeah yeah and then, like it shouldn't it shouldn't even be in the public sphere it's it's literally secret information sharing you know like it it doesn't have to be more than that. And it was never intended to be more than that. We do, Australia and the US and the UK and Canada need to share information with each other like crucially. Like Australia is a collection site for signals intelligence that the US uses that is extremely valuable. We couldn't afford to break off from Australia, you know, the information sharing arrangement. New Zealand is a net taker of intelligence because it doesn't operate a whole intelligence collection system of its own and so it's like do you want to be blind on intel to you know transnational terrorist threats or something and it's like that's what's at stake with the existence of five eyes or being part of five eyes but it's it has this political look to it you know what's funny is in new zealand i don't want to keep going on about this but like I've noticed here that there's like a weird longing for the like Victorian empire days and it's it's like it's a thing (laughs) in my mind it's like everybody wanted to break free from empire but then when you talk to Australians and Kiwis there's a weird sentimentality about the empire because it is like for a long time it was the identity now it seems to be more of a political question like yearning for empire is almost like virtue signaling that you're on the right or something is that is that correct?
2: It's just virtue signaling that you're, yeah, you're on the right to an extent, but the only comment I'd really make on that is it's just a commentary on how, how white the corridors of power are, because I can guarantee you no Maori person would ever feel that way. Or, of course. Or if they do, it's very, and it's, it's very, it's very sad because you're right. People do have this longing for this time that was just so heinous. Throughout.
0: It's interesting because it's a current question, future of Five Eyes.
4: Time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter
0: so that you don't have to. All right, for Stay Off Twitter this week, uh, two quick ones. One is from uh, Buddy Panda, He's at Carnegie now. He was at the Diplomat for a long time. But he's just noting this news story that there are a bunch of American states, all the red ones pretty much, who are orchestrating efforts to throw out millions of American votes to not validate the election results, right, for the presidency. And Ankit says, I'm curious what our friends in democracies overseas think of all this business. (laughs) I mean, the idea of America just brushing this all off and stepping up to credibly lead an quote, alliance of democracies against China in the coming years seems optimistic. I think that's right. Everyone overseas is watching this. They see this is the problem, right? The establishment thinks of Trump as anomalous they try to hide America's embarrassing flaws because that's the only way that you can make a claim to leadership it's the only way you can claim the exceptionalism that you were born and bred with it's all you know and so you hide you hide the crazy uncle who believes in QAnon even though they have seats in congress now right you try to say well yeah Trump won the presidency but that was an anomaly couldn't happen again, right? And the rest of the world is not a fucking idiot. They see that this is a, Trump is a symptom of a larger problem. That symptom lives on. He lost the election, and still you have legislatures working to overturn the election result. That is active authoritarianism. That is an attempt to actually end democracy. The result of, of their efforts determines whether America is a democracy or not right? If they fail, we stay a sort of oligarchic democracy. If they succeed, we're officially not, you know? And so everybody is seeing this. Free and open anything is a fucking joke. American leadership is a fucking joke. And America, Biden has a hell of a problem because it's like our rhetorical talking points are very dissonant with the reality of like who we are. And yet there are still like a number of countries overseas who rely on us in different kinds of ways, you know, not least our allies. So it's, it's a difficult situation. Second tweet from James Palmer, friend of the pod, uh, foreign policy magazine deputy editor. So he just says somewhere in the depths of the Chinese military academic system, there's a guy who believes everything us Marines say about themselves and has been writing excited reports about it in the same way that mess Western media do (laughs) about Chinese military bullshitting. (laughs) The, American, <laughs> the Americans have built super soldiers who can whip half a dozen army men with one arm tied behind their back. Even their penises are so huge they can be used as a weapon, according to the secret Reddit military forum I have accessed. <laughs> this is so. It's true. Like if you folk. Ha, the reason this is why methodology matters. The reason's why why you select to analyze certain information and the credibility that you give it, the representativeness that you get it, give to it matters a lot, right? And this should be obvious, but like James Palmer found a way to express it in like a not wonky way that really brings the point home, right? If you talk to marines in person or on a blog or in any format basically, because I've worked with them for years, they will talk about the size of their penises, their sexual prowess, and their killing ability. And if you take that all at face value, you'd think they're fucking super soldiers, super soldier sex gods, right? And like, it's obviously not... (laughs) Well, it's not... Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. But you like, nobody would take what Marines say as face value or as policy. Right. And so, like, the idea that you're going to extrapolate from the hardest of the hard of the U.S. military, the people who are like the most focused on being psychopaths professionally, it's their job to kill that you're going to extrapolate from that, like U.S. foreign policy or U.S. intentions in the Pacific or something that's laughable. And yet that's what a lot of China watchers do right? That's what these guys, oh, do you read Mandarin? Did you hear about the Seventh Party Congress? Did you read the PLA fucking manual guide for fucking whatever? Those are data points. We should care about what different people in the Chinese system say, but then you have to be careful about which pieces of information that coming out of China that you choose to amplify and claim represent Chinese intentions or Chinese policy. So James is calling for the thing that nobody cares about anymore, which is nuance and sort of like systematic thinking. But in the funniest of way that talks about penises. I
2: was going to make a joke about Marines, but I sort of realized that in your life, there are a few groups you just don't want to fuck with. People that have been trained to kill me in every single possible way I can think of, there's not one of them.
3: So <clears throat> my first read of the week is from Jeffrey Lewis, professor at the Middlebury Institute and working over at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies. So the center of his topic is a recent interview with Barack Obama on drone warfare, where he states, the problem is that it starts giving you the illusion that it is not war. It started becoming too easy and I had to impose internally a process to remind everyone involved. This isn't target practice. So to this, Lewis goes, the introspection is great, but it is worth remembering that people who told him this at the time were treated like crazy hippies. There's a large body of literature about this precise illusion and how it lured a series of Cold War presidents into ill-conceived covert action. So I gotta know, Van, were you one of these crazy hippies?
0: Sort of, yeah. I mean, in the, within the system, there was not really space to be critical. Like, you couldn't, there was not like a dissent... Option, you know? But it was, I remember when um, Leon Panetta was Secretary of Defense, he gave an interview where he said drones were the only game in town in terms of pulling a lever on policy that could make something happen like there weren't, you you know, like you move force posture around and it's very slow and you have to deal with a lot of bureaucracy and it costs a lot of money. You obviously aren't going to start a new war um, because that's very costly. And it was very anti Obama and anti what the mood of the moment was. What are you going to do? You can only send John Kerry on a plane so many times, like what's that going to achieve? And so like when you're looking at your toolkit, uh, from the National Security Council or from the White House. It's like, we're responsible for the world. What can we actually do? And so Panetta's Panetta's answer, which was that that was capturing the moment, was like, well, we can launch drone strikes. <laughs> and it's like, that's a horrible <laughs> fucking reason. <Yeah>. To, <laughs> that's a horrible reason to fucking do it. But it was like a supply-side explanation for foreign policy. It's like, well, it's available, and therefore... We no, we should do it. No. You know?
2: God damn it! That's the supply side drone strike.
0: It's fucking wild. Yeah. yeah, it's it really is. It's like you know, push button. It, the 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 seductiveness was the ease of it and the measurable, uh, tangible effect of it. You can push a button and remove terror a uh, number of terrorists right now, right? And that was very seductive, and it was only weighed up against, you know. What's the legality and what will be the civilian blowback, right? And those things were also, you know, sanitized, like the bureaucracy produced uh, estimates for those kinds of things so that you had a sense of like, are you going to end up killing civilians when you launch drone strikes, right? But they're, they're predictions, right? It's almost like a subjective probability thing. And so from the policymaker perspective, it's like you almost discount that part and the real question is, we have a chance to eliminate a terrorist. Do we want to take it or not? It's how things often got presented to Obama. So, like, I'm very critical of Obama, obviously, on the drones. And the thing that really upsets me is what Jeffrey points out, which is like Ben Rhodes and all these motherfuckers were extremely condescending toward outside groups who were pointing out, which including Jeffrey Lewis, who were pointing out the you're waging war by fucking robot and you're creating, not only are you generating civilian blowback and this is going to have consequences for us and it's fucking anti-moral, but it's on top of all of that, you're creating new precedents. You're encouraging drone proliferation. You're, you're opening up Pandora's box and now we can't control what other countries do with these motherfucking drones But they all know they want one because they all have terrorists and dissidents and rebels that they want to take care of. And boy, would it be nice if we could fucking ethnically cleanse with robots instead of soldiers. And so, like, that's the world that we that Obama helped create by using drone strikes so gratuitously. Um, But I also understand, like, why he did it, not sanctioning it in not not like an approval kind of way. I know the mindset and how he got there. And the problem is that they're, one, they reacted condescendingly to people who were giving warnings, and then that's not forgivable. And then the other thing is like, there needed to be more people in the system who could actually dissent, who could push back. um, And there just weren't.
3: So I'm gonna lighten things up for my next tweet. This one is from Annette Joseph, Assistant Professor of French and Francophone Studies. Not so much a foreign policy-based subject, but I thought it was worth flagging down for interest. So Joseph asks, if you could teach a class on a single author, who would it be?
0: So I I mean I'm on a WEB Du Bois uh-huh. kick right now, so probably <laughs> Du Bois. He had incredible range in the the things he wrote about. And like he always took a race lens on everything, and a to secondarily a class lens on everything. But I mean he was writing about human nature, sociology, international relations, the causes of war, you know, empire, all like just so many different things. And he did it in like a very poetic and like emotionally in touch way. And he, in many ways, he, he should be one of the founding fathers of IR and of sociology. And he's like not considered that. So I would probably say that if it's something more modern, I would kind of like to, to, almost teach a class on, you know, friend of the pod, Dan Nexon, because he has written about (laughs) like Harry Potter and Star Wars for world politics. He's written about empire. He's been part of like the paradigm wars and the post-paradigm wars in IR. Like you could teach a whole course on him. The only problem is he's still alive. Progressive foreign policy stuff. He was on Bernie's team very early, but like doing a course on somebody
2: i'm sorry the only unfortunate thing
0: is that he's still alive i mean yeah you know i love you buddy but if he's still alive it's weird to teach a class that focuses on one person who you could like email you know for clarity like these things are better when they're posthumous or they can can be more just
1: leading on your students the whole time just being like this highly respected scholar who sadly passed away earlier this year. And then just the plot twist at the end of the course. And now, back from the dead,
0: it's Dan Dixon on Zoom. And here he is on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, people funny.
4: probably wouldn't question it. 2020 has been a year.
0: So, yeah, I don't know. Those are That's my, my quick answer, I guess.
1: Let's jump into Armchair Analysis, where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. This week we'll do a piece called There's Only One Way Out of Afghanistan, which is in Foreign Affairs, and it's a piece by Barnett R. Rubin. And he starts the piece by writing that U.S. policymakers freely admit there can be no military solution to Afghanistan's problems, yet they continue to debate the same false choice between disengagement and troop commitment to counterterrorism. And the incoming administration of President-elect Joe Biden has a chance to move beyond this blinkered approach. And crucially, he says that how it deals with countries with a stake in Afghanistan's future with countries like Russia and China and Pakistan and India and Iran will profoundly affect America's status in the region and Afghanistan's future. He says that the Biden administration should continue to draw down troops in accordance with the agreement the administration of President Donald Trump signed with the Taliban in February 2020, though we could seek to adjust the timeline since implementation of parts of the agreement have been delayed. But, and crucially, it should draw down as part of a coordinated regional strategy that seeks to capitalize on areas of alignment between the United States and regional powers. And he he goes on a bit of a tangent, and he explains how even the Trump administration found it had to engage those regional partners when it was going through this process and Mm -hmm. engaged in the so-called Moscow process. But even as it did so, it found its hawkish approaches to those same partners in that and every other sphere really destabilizing so he writes that the trump administration also made some effort to bring iran on board with the peace efforts of afghanistan and in 2018 it authorized exceptions to u.s sanctions on iran for investments in shabaha an iranian port partially financed by india and japan that would give india access to afghanistan and central asia but the united states maximum pressure campaign against iran continued to scare off investment in the port blunting the diplomatic impact of the exceptions and later Iran declined to participate in the US-led Afghan peace consultations. So he writes that the Biden administration may wish to negotiate clear relationships and contingencies among the co- the components of the process and to coordinate the deal's implementation with other regional initiatives, such as rejoining the Iran nuclear agreement. But doing so will require coordinated diplomatic outreach to Afghanistan's powerful neighbors, all of whom, except India, have political relationships with both the Afghan government and the Taliban, which brings up the question of, of how, how would you do that? And he writes in this context, in very specifically about each of the different countries. But I think most interesting, he writes about China. And he says that there's a couple of things that the, the states could do. First, engage in more joint training of, of Afghan uh, foreign policy and military officers, which is not controversial allow the purchase of Chinese helicopters for Afghan use, which is slightly more controversial. And then he writes that China could be enticed to step up military cooperation in part because of its interest in northeast Afghanistan, which borders the Xinjiang Uyghur autonomous region. Beijing has imposed a draconian regime of surveillance and detention in this region to suppress what it characterizes as the three evils of separatism, extremism, and terrorism. Its repression extends far beyond what might be justified by legitimate security threats, but legitimate security threats nonetheless exist. So my read is he's saying that America should use that as a as a push to greater security cooperation.
0: Yeah,
1: and then he he starts to kill even more sacred cows. He says that America should support the Beijing, uh, the China's Belt and Road Initiative, and writes that Beijing's signature infrastructure building drive has undeniable appeal. That one 2017 Asian Development Bank study estimated that Asia will need 26 trillion in infrastructure investment between 2016 and 2030. And nowhere is that need more acute than in Afghanistan. Andy recommends that America joins the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and saying that a significant capital contribution would make Washington an influencer as well as a critic. The reason I found the piece interesting is because I think it's 100% right on the core idea that continuing a military-oriented approach to Afghanistan without engaging in regional diplomacy is destined to fail. There's just no chance that that's going to succeed in resolving Afghanistan's problems or in extricating America from the issue. Mm. What was difficult about the piece was that it is trying to conceptualize what that regional diplomatic engagement might look like. And regardless of whether you agree with his policy prescriptions, I think the the thing that it conveys is that regional diplomacy is hard, and it requires making really significant compromises and trade-offs, regardless of, of what you're pursuing, which is part of why America, and almost all countries, but America most particularly, often don't like diplomacy because it requires those hard trade-offs and it's why america tends to take the military option instead even though it's not likely to succeed yeah but i mean then what, what did you think what was your take on the piece
0: man every 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 line almost i was like oh this is profoundly good oh this is stupid oh no i agree with that oh no i disagree with that i kept this thing was like jerking me in both directions constantly. Um, I think the analysis is extremely good. I think the meta point he's making is extremely correct, which is that like the decision about troop withdrawal, it needs to happen, but it needs to happen in a smart way that the Trump administration has been incapable of. And by smart, it means accounting for what the effects of withdrawal will be and how you can shape those effects through regional diplomacy through embedding your withdrawal decision in a regional diplomatic context, because Afghanistan is literally surrounded by other great powers and serious power centers at the intersection of all of geopolitics, it seems like. And so like the idea that you can just give a stiff arm to Iran and to China and to Russia and then just do what you will... That's hubris, bro. That's fucking unipolar moment shit, and that's how we got into this mess in the first place, frankly. And so, um, I like a lot about this piece. I'm way cooler on the notion of um some of the China recommendations. Something so something that I do think comes out of this piece. It's a very challenging read. I like I think people should read this even if you don't care about Afghanistan, if you're into foreign policy, there's a lot here to noodle on and to think about. One thing that uh, I think is right that nobody has ever said, I don't think, is that Indo-Pacific as a regional construct is too big. Sometimes you can think about it, an Indo-Pacific strategy, there's some value in thinking strategically about this region that spans from South Asia over to the Oceania, but there's a huge fucking strategic disconnect between continental Asia and maritime East Asia and the Pacific. They have two different like logics, and sometimes they they connect, right? Um, because China is like kind of in the middle of them both. But we need our own continental Asia strategy separate from a maritime strategy, or a primarily maritime strategy that deals with East Asia and the Pacific. These are two separate things, and the the zealotry about Indo Pacific has blinded us to that truth. That is true. That's real. And this is a very good example of it because there's no room in Indo-Pacific strategy for figuring out Afghanistan and getting out of Afghanistan, frankly. Um, And so that is not a realization I think I would have come to were it not for this peace. And I do think that there has to be some cooperation with China precisely because it's already there. It's already an influential player. And there is a very high, what I would call risk, not inevitability of Afghanistan becoming part of like a Chinese sphere of influence. And we need to have a conversation at some point about like how bad or acceptable that would be because there's on the left there in the U S there's a divide about this and spheres of influence. They can be a basis for near-term stability. They're generally not long-term stable and they're usually undemocratic Right. There's a question about how much we would want Chi- Afghanistan to become part of a Chinese sphere of influence. But then there's like the policy prescriptions in this piece is like join AIIB, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Maybe I wouldn't do it because of Afghanistan. And I do think it's true that like just being stock opposition to Belt and Road Initiative and to AIIB, all these infrastructure plays that China's got I don't, this piece says like, okay, it's a binary of we reject those things or we join them. That's not the binary. We could be proposing alternatives if we were fucking smart, if we were wanting to have a Marshall Plan, if we were wanting to actually reduce inequality within countries so that stolen money that dictators take from their people didn't get pumped into fucking New York real estate or whatever you know, or put off in some offshore account. Part of the problem, like, you get separatism, ethnic violence, civil war, and then sometimes interstate disputes because you've got everybody on the take, because you've got deeply unfair political circumstances in these countries. And so the question is, like, can we do something to help remedy that? And that gets at like the core causes of insecurity. That I, I mentioned all of this because signing on to China's like imperial projects is not necessarily the solution, but I, I'm also not um, instinctively opposed to it, right? Because there is an infrastructure need. And so like, I don't have the solution at this moment, but I'm not ready to say in the name of Afghanistan we should fucking endorse and legitimize everything China does. I think that's fucking smuggling in a huge strategic consequence for something that's very small. Afghanistan is very small. We have to keep into perspective what this is, right? We only care about Afghanistan, as America at least, because it was the safe haven for al-Qaeda for 9-11. That is something we cannot permanently fix or prevent. And our troop presence there won't fix or prevent that. And our troop presence there has created the endless wars. It is the endless war. And that has created militarism of the police, militarism of the state, expansion of the national security state, the justification for the drone strike problem. So like all of these negative problems come from our long-term military presence in Afghanistan. We do have to draw down intelligently in a regional context the how is not as straightforward as as this article describes i think and you don't want to withdraw in a way that sort of like legitimizes chinese control over this region just as you wouldn't want to withdraw in a way that guarantees that al qaeda and the taliban stay best friends which is like the real that's the core problem and so like i was i was speaking at an event a couple weeks ago a guy in the audience asked me what I thought Biden would do on Afghanistan withdrawal because he was worried, this dude was worried that China would take over Afghanistan. And so he he thought U.S. troop presence in Afghanistan kept the Chinese at bay. I'm not super interested in China owning Afghanistan, but I also don't want China to be the reason that we stay. And so like in his question, I almost saw a morphing or an evolution in the rationale for U S troop presence in Afghanistan. And it's like, that would become a truly endless fucking war. If the reason that
2: we stayed was
0: because, well, as soon as we leave, like we substitute Al Qaeda for China, that's a fucking losing hand too, you know? So I don't know, like there's no great solution here. I just know the Trump administration is not equipped to deal with this. They've proven that, um, that Biden's got a shit hand and that we do come hell or high water have to withdraw troops in the next few years. It has to happen and it has to be pretty complete. But I'd like to think that there's a way to do it where we don't aid and abet fucking Chinese expansion of its surveillance, ethnic cleansing uh, from Xinjiang over the border into Afghanistan. Like that, I think we can avoid legitimizing that. All right, time for Ask Me Anything where people ask me anything
4: so for this week for ask me anything i have two questions the first one is from jordan haywood what is your take on mayor pete as ambassador to china
0: so politically i think it makes sense uh, mayor pete is pretty green he has no foreign policy claim that he can make in terms of expertise uh it's kind of a tradition that a you know, presidential candidate would have some foreign policy chops, especially like an apple polishing presidential candidate, um, which is his kind of brand. You know, Buttigieg is not my guy. He's fine. He's a liberal technocrat kind of guy. A guy I know told me recently that he spoke to someone Buttigieg grew up with. And back when he was in high school, he was telling people he was going to run for president. I kind of hate him because of that. But I also appreciate that he's competent and an achiever, and I mention all of that because he's clearly going to run for president in the future. He clearly thinks of himself as the future of the Democratic Party, and he and Biden owes him. But he needs a sexy job, and uh, he's not going to be Secretary of State because he's still a fucking boy wonder. It's not that's not going to happen. And so they were talking about UN ambassador, but there was like way more qualified people um, that suited the position better so it's like what can you possibly give this guy who's my age that's sexy ambassador to china is like the sexiest thing left (laughs) and so that i think i think it makes a lot of sense it would make more sense if it was a you know china expert as ambassador but like the nature of ambassadorships is tends to be like pretty corrupt anyway and it's based on like political patronage so this kind of makes sense to me
2: hearing uh Pete Buttigieg and sexy in the same sentence over and over again is making me really uncomfortable.
4: Question this week is from Ted Simpson from Orlando. Hey man, this may sound out of left field, but wondering what movies define you. I mean, if you had to point to five movies that were important to your life or something, what would they be?
0: Transformers. (laughs) God damn it. Um, (laughs) So I'll name a couple of them. I'll ask you guys for at least one each. But Karate Kid is my like moral template for it's like the narrative I impose on all situations. Basically, I'm always (laughs) the underdog. I'm always the skinny kid getting picked on. There's always a bully out there. Um, There's always things fucked up. And so like, (laughs) that's the thing I carry around with me everywhere. Uh, And you got kicked in kneecaps. (laughs) Sweep the leg. (laughs) Bullworth, this sounds weird, but it more accurately reflects my politics than just about anything. My, My agenda is basically Bullworth's agenda. And two political movies that were very influential in getting me interested in international relations in the first place. One was 13 Days About the Cuban Missile Crisis, Uh, The other one is Lord of War. Nicolas Cage is like this um, arms trafficking guy. Brutal. It's such a good movie. Yeah, true story, too. And then, like, I'm a sucker for like romance stories, but that are weird. (laughs) And so, like, Vanilla Sky and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind are both, I don't know, deeply emotive movies that don't connect to anything except my. Personal feelings, and they are super weird and good. But there's also like a romance angle in them. So I guess that's it. I don't know. Like I would, I I'm sure there are like more important movies I could mention, but those are the things that stand out. What about you guys?
4: Star Wars. I'm just going to say Star Wars. I'm not going to say which ones because they all devolve into arguments, <laughs> and smart. I know how toxic the Star Wars fandom is. So yeah. I'm just going to
1: They're say all Star Wars. equally good though, aren't they? Yeah, I think
4: Peace well, yeah, I, it's uh, like I.
0: Debate. That's a cause of debate right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
4: I'm just gonna say style
0: wasn't. And... in. right,
1: mine is similar. As a kid, we were raised on the Studio Ghibli films, so oh yeah, My just... Neighbour Totoro is a, a classic. Like that film is probably my favourite film of all time. It's what I watch when I'm like, wait, who's out in my mind? What? Who? What? Studio Ghibli. Oh, yeah, dude, no. man, Studio know so Ghibli. Shit. Ghibli. So. <laughs> I, oh my god! What are <laughs> you missing out? This is these are films you've got to show your your son. Like they are the the best films of all time. So Studio Ghibli is like a Japanese film company that does like animated films that are kind of like a hybrid of oh, Japanese it's and Western styles. One. Like they're really really cool. Um, but my never thought that I was like this very wholesome family oh, film would highly yeah. recommend. And then the other one that had a real massive impact on me is like the far end of this of the Ghibli spectrum, which is. Norska and the Valley of the Wind, which is like this incredibly dystopian environmental tale, <laughs> yeah. which but which somehow still manages to be super uplifting. Um, so if you're looking for good, wholesome, family-friendly vibes, would strongly recommend My Neighbor Totoro and Norska and the Valley of the Wind.
0: Wow. I, it's almost like I didn't understand what you were saying. Those things were so foreign <laughs> to me. Oh, my <laughs> God. My God.
2: Oh, man, those dude,
1: a I, what about sitting,
0: fucking Training Day or, or something, dude? What the fuck?
1: I'm sitting homework. You've got to show your kid these films. This oh is so
0: my good. god, who's got a palate cleansing one now? That was weird.
3: Uh, I really like Shrek 2. So there's this scene, Ed, where, <laughs> there's this scene where they're singing <laughs> "I'm Holding great Out great for hero. a Hero," and I think that's kind of like Loki. And I mean this seriously, kind of defined sort of my sense of humor.
2: it is good it's a good
3: film it's good films so that's my palate cleanser but on a slightly serious note i think and i was talking about this with my brother last night because i honestly couldn't think of movies it's like as soon as van was like hey you guys should think about movies that defined your life i was like i have never watched a movie ever in my life (laughs) was there a youtube clip
0: that defined your life
3: (laughs) uh like unironically i know we joked about it as just like my second one because you said we should name one or two mm-hmm. it was either gonna be you know back to the future because that was one of the things my like that was like one of the first movies i've ever remember being like hey maybe you should watch this mm-hmm. but the second one unironically i think is the 1984 transformers movie i know we joked about it and i keep bringing it up like it's so much a joke but i think it's legit there's a
0: 1984 yeah. transformers movie
3: yeah so it was basically like you know they had the whole animated series, and then all these kids. Oh, my man. dad was telling me this, not that I was alive. walked into theaters, and then they killed Optimus Prime in front of them in like the first ten minutes. Oh wait a second! Like it was it. one yeah. of those like epic movies. <laughs> 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 so that. This
1: has been a palate cleanser in the same way that the rat that Shrek eats was a palate cleanser.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I, about you, Jake? Uh, I'll be real quick. Out of context, I'm not going to give any context like Cromer Kiara. Uh, there are four. There's Children of Men. That was good. Uh, Apocalypse Now, Greg Lebowski, and oh, yeah. The Muppets' Treasure Island. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: at least yeah, you didn't uh, say Con Air. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, soul plane. <laughs> yeah, soul plane. Snakes on a plane. Um. Okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love that
0: movie. Motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, that's good. I feel like I know you all a little bit better, um, except for <laughs> Pete. And... <laughs>
1: I aim to be indecipherable
0: <laughs> and inculcated. <incoherent. Yeah. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> okay. All right, gang, that's going to do it. Find me a slash undiplomatic to buy us coffees. Give us a rating, shout out on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. And uh, catch you next time. Peace.